If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Acts. This morning we will be in chapter 18. As the Apostle Paul, as we've been following him in his missionary journeys, now on the last leg of his second journey, and we'll be walking with him in the city of Corinth this morning. And we're going to track with Paul from the moment he steps foot in Corinth to the moment he leaves Corinth. And as we do, we will see that Paul is seeking to be a faithful gospel witness while he's there. And God is providing him with everything that he needs to accomplish that task. We're going to see God only in the, kind of in the background of this passage, but we're going to see his thumbprint all throughout this as we recognize that it is God moving and acting to provide Paul with everything that he needs to accomplish the task of being a faithful gospel witness in Corinth. And it's my hope and prayer that this would be an encouragement to us today as we recognize that just as God has provided for Paul to be a faithful gospel witness in Corinth, so he has provided for us everything that we need in order to be a faithful gospel witness in our time and in our culture. So let's read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 22. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, a ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. 
But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Centria he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay up for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to gather as your people on this day and in this place to worship you, to mark this day as the day of your son's resurrection from the dead, confirming that you had accepted payment, the payment of his own blood shed at Calvary as full and sufficient payment for the sins of all your people who had rebelled against you. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering. We thank you for the honor of worshiping you in song. And now we continue in that spirit of worship as we turn to your word. Oh, Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you that we can trust it. That we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is your very breath to us. And Father, being what it is, we ask in faith that you would use it this morning to convict confirm, to bring to faith, to edify in the faith, to challenge us to be faithful in the mission that you've given to us. Father, do all these things by your grace and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we said, and as you probably noticed as we read through this passage, God is kind of in the background here. He's mentioned only in passing, except for the vision that Paul receives directly from Jesus in a vision in verses 9 and 10. Other than that, God is in the background of this passage. But that's where he is. And that's where he always is. He's in the background, moving and acting and accomplishing his will. And in this setting, providing Paul with everything that he needs to accomplish this task that he's given him to be a faithful gospel witness in this city called Corinth. So I want us to, to look for this thumbprint of God in this passage, and I want us to track with that and see the many ways in which God made this provision for Paul and be reminded that he has likewise made provision for us so that we will be faithful gospel witnesses wherever he sent us. So how does God provide for Paul in Corinth? A number of different ways. First of all, he made provision for co-workers. Silas and Timothy are still back in Macedonia. We remember that when the Jews who continued to follow Paul from town to town caught up with him in Berea, the brothers sent Paul on by himself to Athens. And we noted last week when we covered Paul's ministry in Athens, that that was unique, that he was by himself there. That was unique in Paul's ministry. And apparently God did not intend for Paul to do ministry in Corinth by himself. And so he sends him some gospel partners, 
some friends in ministry to do ministry together. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. And we're introduced to them here, but we see them throughout Paul's ministry. And they apparently continue to be gospel partners with Paul and and trusted friends of Paul in ministry throughout his life. In fact, he, he mentions them by name several places. And at the end of the book of Romans, his letter to the Romans, his, the, the end of his letter to the Corinthians here, that he later writes this letter to them. In his letter that he writes to, to Timothy, who later will show up on the scene and who eventually becomes pastor of the church at Ephesus, as he's writing his final letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he calls this couple out by name. Thank them. Send greetings to them. For his entire life, Aquila and Priscilla were gospel partners. Here, they open their home to Paul. As we'll see in chapter 19, they open their home in Ephesus when they get there to the church itself. The church meets in their home in Ephesus. And so they demonstrate gospel hospitality. They're co-workers in the gospel, friends in ministry for the apostle Paul. They're of the same trade. They happen to be tent makers along with Paul. And so he ends up staying with them and doing ministry with them. And we're going to see more of their ministry when we get to Ephesus in the next chapter. But like Paul, God has likewise called us to be faithful gospel witnesses. We, we ought to know that by now, having walked through the book of Acts to this point. And, and, and Luke will continue to drive that home, that, that we're to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. But also like Paul... God has not called us to be his witnesses by ourselves. He's not called us to do that alone. He hasn't sent us by ourselves. He gives us co-workers. He gives us friends in ministry. He gives us partners in the gospel. Who are your co-laborers in gospel mission? If you're married... Certainly, it includes your spouse, it includes your family. But church, I want you to look around. And I don't do this often. I hardly ever do this, but I want you to look around. Look, look around at the people around you. These fellow members of the church are your co-laborers in the gospel. They are your friends in ministry. They are the, the gospel partners that God has put into your life to encourage and challenge you to continue to be faithful in your gospel witness. This is part of what we're after in our base group. It includes, but is not limited to, the folks that are in our base group. Part of what we're after in our base groups is that we would seek to do gospel mission together. And this is not limited to us just giving our individual reports of our individual efforts on our individual times, but rather to consider how God has put us together for the purpose of helping one another in mission, to coming alongside one another and supporting one another, encouraging one another, and doing gospel witness together. 
God made provision for Paul to have co-workers in his gospel ministry. And he's done the same for us. And we should both thank him for that provision as well as seek to make use of that provision. Lord, thank you so much for these precious saints that you have put into my life as co-laborers in the gospel. Lord, thank you for putting them in my life. But you know, if we thank the Lord for the partners that he's put in our life and we don't ever make use of that provision, then those words of thanks are just empty words. Think about it. If God has made provision for others to join you in gospel ministry, then why do we keep trying to do it by ourselves? Is it because we think that we can do it better on our own? Is it because we don't want to admit that we need their help in gospel ministry? Is it because we're afraid of the accountability that will be part of gospel partnership? If we think about it, it's usually our flesh that works against us leaning on one another to be his witnesses. We need one another if we're going to fully engage in the gospel witness opportunities that God has given to us as a church. But I want us to see here, and maybe it's obvious, it wasn't obvious to me, but Aquila and Priscilla needed Paul just as much as Paul needed them. They were kicked out of Rome. This was foreign territory for them. They, they didn't know a soul in Corinth. Friend, don't engage in gospel partnership just because you need their help, but also realize that you need their help and they need your help to help one another. Here's a very specific point of application to consider. This week, I want to challenge you to find one other member of the church and tell them how thankful you are to God for Him putting them into your life to be an encouragement to be faithful in gospel witness. Thank them for that. And then invite them, give them permission to do one thing this week that would encourage you to be faithful in gospel witness. You figure out what that needs to be, whether it's walking across the street and introducing yourself to a neighbor you didn't know. Maybe it's walking across the hall to engage a coworker in a gospel conversation, whatever it is. But give your, your co-worker in the gospel, your, your gospel partner, give them the permission to take one tangible step this week to encourage you in your faithfulness to take that step in gospel witness. And then you do that for them the next week. And then keep doing that for one another until Jesus comes home, comes back or takes you home. God has made provision that we don't do gospel ministry alone. Praise God for that. But let's make use of that. Second way God provided for Paul is he provided income. He made provision for his income. And when I say income, I'm referring to the means by which he provided for his needs. The means by which his needs are taken care of. God makes provision for his needs to be supplied. 
not only do Aquila and Aquila and Priscilla provide friendship and partnership in gospel ministry, but they also provide a source of income for Paul. They're both of the same trade. They're both tent makers. And so they, they not only work together in gospel ministry, but they literally work together making tents in order to provide for their respective needs. It, it appears, as, look, as we look at this passage, that before Silas and Timothy return from Macedonia, Paul is bivocational here, isn't he? He's making tents to make an income, and, and on his off days and on the Sabbath and his free time, where is he? He's in the synagogues, reasoning with the Jews. But after Silas and Timothy arrive in Corinth, Paul goes full-time in ministry. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with what? No longer with tent making. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And why is that? What was it about their arrival in Corinth that allowed Paul to spend now the bulk of his time in gospel ministry. Well, Paul himself will later tell us when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this, And when I was with you, speaking of this time, when I was with you and, and was in need, in other words, I had a financial need, I did not burden anyone. Why? For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So both before Silas and Timothy arrive in Corinth and after they arrive in Corinth, God makes a way for Paul's needs to be met. And why? So that he could continue in gospel ministry. Before Silas and Timothy come back from Macedonia, God gave Paul gospel friends, Aquila and Priscilla, who just happened to be tent makers along with Paul. And so they worked together in that trade in order to provide for their needs. But he was still active in ministry, though in his free time and, and on the Sabbath. But then after Silas and Timothy arrive, they bring a gift from the churches in Macedonia to help provide for Paul's needs so that he no longer needs to make tents in order to support his ministry. And the point here is that God is the one who made sure that all of Paul's needs would be met. I think Paul learned a lesson here. He would later write to the Philippians. We all know the verse, Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He learned and understood that whatever need he had, God is the source of provision for that. He was going to provide for all of their needs. Now it takes, it takes faith to believe that, doesn't it? To believe that every need of mine and every need of my family will be met, will be provided for. Now, of course, we need to understand that there's a big difference sometimes between our wants and our needs. Sometimes what we want is not what we need, and what we need is not what we want. 
our, our, our wants are often defined and de- determined by our flesh, whereas our needs are determined by God's will. And whatever God wills that we need, we're promised will be supplied richly, bountifully, graciously, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Church, God has made provision for all of our needs, but for what purpose? So that we might be enabled to engage faithfully in gospel witness for his glory. And in response to that reality, we must again thank him for that provision. But perhaps we also need to repent. If there is a degree to which we are discontent with how he supplies our needs, if we're not content with how he has made provision for our needs, then we need to repent of elevating our wants over our needs. But also, I want us to consider how his provision for our needs enables us, enables us to be faithful in gospel witness. Think about for a moment, Perhaps he provided you with that house in that neighborhood so that you might engage that neighbor in a gospel conversation. Maybe he gave you that job with that coworker or that client so that you might be a gospel witness to him or her. Maybe he gave you the means to make that large income so that you might be generous in supporting church planting and missions all over the world. Maybe he gave you the means to make a relatively low income so that you might come alongside others who struggle with a low income with the hope of the gospel. Maybe he gave you a job that is flexible and gives you more free time so that you might invest that free time in gospel ministry. Consider, church, how... The means and the way, the method in which God has provided for your needs enables you to be available for gospel witness for him. The third provision that we see here is the provision of opportunity for gospel witness. We see this all throughout this passage, that God gave Paul opportunities to be a witness for him, whether it's on his free time on the Sabbath In verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks, or whether it was after Silas and Timothy arrived, and he was able to, as verse 5 says, occupy his time more fully with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. God gave him ample opportunity to be a witness for him, and Paul took advantage of that. Paul did not use his tent-making his need to provide a source of income for himself as an excuse to not engage in gospel opportunities there in Corinth. He found a way. And neither, when he no longer needed to make tents, he didn't use the fact that he had free time as an excuse to spend that time on himself. Rather, he saw that as an opportunity from the Lord to use that free time to be occupied more fully with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 
Here's a question for all of us. Has the Lord provided us with opportunities for gospel witness? As we look out at the culture around us today, how could we possibly answer no to that question? As we look at our culture, it is a culture that is drifting further and further and further away from God. Ours is a post-Christian culture. The statistics reveal, objectively, I would argue, that it is impossible for us not to have gospel opportunities unless we're either intentionally or unintentionally isolating or insulating ourselves from the culture around us out of a fear of the, of the sin out there that might infect us, or out of an outright rejection of the Lord's command to be sent as his witnesses to the world around us. Sometimes we forget that we are a sent people, sent to this culture on a mission to be witnesses for Jesus. So he has provided opportunities for us. We know this. And our response to that reality that there are gospel opportunities all around us is perhaps threefold. First, there may be opportunity and need for us to repent if we have in any way not taken advantage of the opportunities that he's given us to be his witnesses or for isolating or insulating ourselves so much so that we don't even see the mission field that's right in front of us. We might need to repent. Secondly, I think we should respond with a cry for the Lord's help to open our eyes, to open our spiritual eyes and, and both see and take advantage of the gospel opportunities that are there for us every single week. And then thirdly, I think we should consider how to adjust the rhythms of our lives so that we come into contact with people who need the Lord more often. Whether this means frequenting the same restaurants, the same shops, whether it means going to the gym at the same time every week to see the same people and engage them in gospel conversation whether it means taking a walk in your neighborhood at a time in which you'll actually see other people, whether it means when you go to little Johnny's t-ball practice or little Susie's ballet practice, that you look for ways to engage other moms and dads who need the Savior. <laughs> they need to hear the gospel. They need the hope of the gospel. Look for ways to adjust your weekly rhythms in order to be more missional. God is going to give you and I opportunities to be his gospel witness, just like he did for Paul. He made that provision for Paul, and he makes that provision for us. The question is whether or not we're going to take advantage of that. Fourth way God provided for Paul is the provision of wisdom to know when to move on. Paul starts in the synagogue here in Corinth, just as he does in most of the towns that we've seen him in, and he reasons with the Jews, trying to persuade them that the Christ is Jesus. But what happens? Look at verse 6. When they opposed and reviled him, 
He shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. If you remember back in chapter 13, he and Barnabas did much the same thing when he was opposed in Pisidian Antioch, and he shook the dust off his feet and went on to Iconium. This gesture means essentially, I'm done with you. And I'm shaking off any further remnant of my responsibility for you. Even the dust of you from my garment. I'm done. I wash my hands of you. I'm no longer responsible for you. It's something perhaps that every parent of every teenager one day will say or wants to say or perhaps thinks about, right? But Paul says it here and he says, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now, this doesn't mean that, that Paul will never preach the gospel again to, to the Jews. In fact, when he gets to Ephesus in the next chapter, he's going to spend three months in the synagogue proclaiming the gospel to his fellow countrymen. But here in Corinth, he moves on. He stops proclaiming the gospel to them in the synagogue, and he, he moves on. And, and, and I, w- I just have to believe that, that the Lord provided wisdom and discernment for Paul to make that call because that is such a difficult call to make. Sometimes God calls us to persevere in our gospel witness to someone even though it looks like there is little to no headway. It's not making a difference. He encourages us to press on and to keep pressing in and to keep persevering in that, which is, in fact, how God will encourage Paul in just a moment in the vision from Jesus. But then apparently there are other times, other situations in which we should move on and take our gospel witness to someone else, somewhere else. And church, we must rely on the Lord's wisdom and discernment to know which is which. If you're sharing the gospel with someone and they're opposing and reviling you as the Jews in Corinth do with Paul, does that mean you should move on? Or does that mean you should press on? I think it's noteworthy that in between the direction to move on in verse 6 and in verses 9 and 10 to press on and, and keep pressing in in Corinth, in between those two we have the provision of spiritual fruit in verses 7 and 8. So, so let's look at all three of those provisions together. First of all here, the, the provision of wisdom to know when to move on. Then in verses 7 and 8, the provision of fruitfulness. Only God provides spiritual fruit. We know that. And then follow, following that in verses 9 and 11, the provision of encouragement from Jesus to press on in gospel witness. In verse 6, something compels Paul to wash his hands of them, and move on. But he doesn't move on very far. He he doesn't get very far. He gets to the next house. He gets to the house right next to the synagogue, and God provides spiritual fruit there. Look at verses 7 and 8. He left there, that is, he left the synagogue, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, so he's a proselyte, His house was next door to the synagogue, and so Paul sets up his ministry headquarters in Corinth in the house of Titius Justus, and what happens? Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, so he's a Jew, now the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household, 
And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Note that it wasn't until Paul moved on from the synagogue, washed his hands of them who were opposing and reviling him, that he begins to see fruit in his ministry. And ironically, the fruit is a Jew. It's a Jew that comes to faith, and not just any Jew. It's the ruler of the synagogue. We're told he and his entire household comes to faith in Jesus. And then the Lord opens the floodgates, and many of the Corinthians hear, believe, and are baptized. See, I don't think that we can dismiss Paul's shaking the dust off of his garment as simply an apostolic temper tantrum. But, but rather, understand that God was sovereign over all of this. And he providentially led Paul to leave the synagogue. Why did he do that? Because he had some folks outside the synagogue and in the streets of Corinth who needed to hear the gospel. And so he led him out there. This reminds me of the parable of the soils that Jesus taught his disciples about in Matthew 13. You remember the story. It's, a, it's the parable of the farmer who's sowing seed in a field. And some of the seed falls on hard ground, the, the, the pathway. And before it can spring up, the birds come and, and take it away. Some of the seed falls on rocky ground, that is, ground that's really shallow. And, and underneath that shallow soil, there's, there's rocks. And so it springs up quickly, but it has no way for roots to grow. And so the sun comes out and scorches it. And some of the seed falls on thorny soil, and the thorns grow up and choke it out. But some of the seed, some of the seed falls on good soil, soil that's been cultivated soil that's been prepared for the seed and it produces grain a hundredfold some 60fold some 30fold and the point of that parable is that we are the sower church we who come to faith in Jesus Christ we've been given the mission we are the sower and our job is to sow the seed our job is not to determine what kind of soil it is our job is to determine or it's simply to sow the seed. God's job is soil cultivation, soil preparation, and growth. Our job is seed propagation, just to sow it. And sometimes, when God reveals to us that there is good soil elsewhere, soil that's ready for the seed, soil that's been prepared for the seed, then we might need to leave the hard soil the rocky, the thorny soil, in order to sow the seed on the good soil that he's prepared for it. Sometimes God wants us to move on in gospel witness. But other times he wants us to press on, to persevere and keep sowing right where we are. Look, look at how God provides encouragement for Paul to press on in his gospel witness in Corinth in verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. In other words, the Lord shows up to Paul in a, in a vision and says in essence, Paul, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. 
in Corinth. There are going to be some difficult days ahead. Days is equally difficult as those that you spent in the synagogue when they opposed you and reviled you. But Paul, I want you to press in and I want you to press on and don't give up. And he didn't give up. As a result of this encouragement, we're told that he stayed in Corinth for 18 months. Far and away, much longer than he has spent in any other city up to this point in his ministry journeys. In fact, the only place he will ever spend longer is in Ephesus, as we'll see in chapters 19 and 20. He spends 18 months here. And note that this was, this was not the pattern for Paul to press on and press in and persevere in a city when he's been opposed. The default has been for him to move on. We've seen it over and over in his journeys as they face opposition in Pisidian Antioch, that's when he shakes the dust off his feet and he moves on to Iconium. In his uh, first missionary journey, when they attempt to stone Paul in Iconium, they flee to Derby. When they do stone him in Derby, they flee on to Lystra, or vice versa. They flee to Lystra from Iconium, and then in Lystra he gets stoned and he flees to Derby. In chapter 17, we saw in his second missionary journey, when he's opposed by the Jews who who rise up to oppose him in Thessalonica, the brothers send him off to Berea. When those Jews follow him to Berea and oppose him there and cause trouble for him in Berea, then they send Paul by himself to Athens. So the pattern has been face opposition in one city and so move on to the next city. That's been the pattern, but here the Lord intervenes and says, Paul, I don't want you to move on. I want you to press on. I want you to keep doing ministry here in Corinth. And I think the encouragement to press on in gospel witness for Paul in Corinth is a really good word for us, church, a really good encouragement for us to press on in gospel ministry where God has placed us, to be faithful in gospel witness to this strange, changing culture in which he's put us as a mission field. If we look at what our Lord told Paul in this vision, we see three commands and three promises. The three commands, the three exhortations are are two don'ts and one do. Don't be afraid. Do keep on speaking. Don't be silent. In other words, press on in your gospel witness. Even though it's frightening, don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Keep on speaking my gospel. Keep at it, Paul. And then the three promises. So, so, so these are the promises that are, are the ground for that exhortation. The promises are the promise of his presence. He says, for I am with you. The promise of his protection. No one will attack you to harm you. And the promise of his people. For I have many in this city who are my people. These three promises here are are the ground for Jesus' exhortation for Paul to not be afraid, to not be silent, and to keep on speaking the gospel. Over and over again, we see in the scriptures that when God calls his people to do something big, something hard, something difficult, he always reminds him, reminds them that he's with them. He always reminds them of his presence. He did it with Abraham in Haran. He did it with Jacob in Canaan. 
He did it with Moses in um, the wilderness. He did it with Joshua in the promised land. And of course, we know that Jesus does it with us in the Great Commission, doesn't he? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, like literally behold, that, mean, that word means look, see this, own this, put a grasp around this. I am with you always to the end of the age. The promise of his presence is the ground of his exhortation for us to not be afraid, not be silent, and keep on speaking his gospel. He also gives them the, gives Paul the promise of his protection. He says, no one will attack you to harm you. Now, if we look at what happens next in the story, what happens? The Jews unite to attack Paul. So what gives? Did, did God not keep his promise to Paul? Of course not. The promise was that no one will attack you to harm you. And the whole point of verses 12 through 17, as we look at that as a whole, is to demonstrate God's faithfulness to this promise, not an exception to it. Because it's through the secular proconsul of Achaia, this, this guy named Gallio, and his refusal to even hear the charges that brought against Paul, that, that God does this to ensure that Paul will not be harmed in this instance and will be released. And so Jesus shows up to Paul in this vision to promise him not only his presence, but his protection. Now, God does not promise us that no harm will befall us. But he does promise to never let his guard down. And he does promise that whatever happens is under the sovereignty of his own purposes and will. And while we may be opposed at times, attacked, and even harmed, we can know that whatever evil we're exposed to, as we learned in the book of Revelation, that evil is on a leash. And God will not allow it to go beyond, one inch beyond, what he intends in order to accomplish his perfect will for us. A will that we know, Romans 8, 28, is for our good and his glory. So the promise of his protection. And then thirdly, there's the promise of his people. He says, for I have many in this city who are my people. And the promise for us that God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it is a promise for us to cling to as well, knowing that our God will surround us with brothers and sisters who will encourage us and support us and challenge us and hold us accountable to be faithful in gospel witness as we mentioned earlier. And this threefold promise here of, of God's presence, God's protection, and God's people is the ground for his threefold exhortation to not be afraid and not be silent and to keep on speaking the gospel. Church, God has always kept his promise to us. He has never left us. And he will be with us to the end of the age. And he's with us now. And we, he will not let anything happen to us that isn't a part of his good and perfect will. And he's given us the church. He's given us his people to link arms with. So let us not be afraid. Let us not be silent. Let us keep on speaking the gospel as long as he puts breath in our lungs. Two more provisions that we see in this text. The provision of protection, as we see it fleshed out in verses 12 through 17. We've already mentioned this. 
that, that while the Jews unite to bring charges against Paul, God fulfills his promise to protect Paul in this instance by sending Gallio, the proconsul, to intervene. And basically, he, he says, I'm not going to lift a finger to help the Jews against Paul. And so Paul is released. Again, we have no promise from the scriptures that God will protect us from harm or protect us from disease or protect us from persecution or suffering. And so that's not what we're to take away from this. Rather, our takeaway is this, that if God wants the gospel in the jailhouse, then he'll ensure that his people get there. If God wants his gospel in the hospital, then he'll ensure that his people get there. And if God wants his gospel on the streets, then he'll ensure that his people are kept out of both the jailhouse and the gospel. God will protect and intervene to ensure that we are where we need to be in order to accomplish his perfect will and accomplish his perfect mission, which leads us to the last provision, the provision of faith to trust in God's plan. In verses 18 through the the end of our passage, uh, we see Paul leaving Corinth. He's got his traveling companions with him. Aquila and, and, and Priscilla are, are with him now. And he begins to make his way home. They first go to Centria and then to Ephesus where he leaves Aquila and Priscilla. You catch up with them in, in chapter 19. Then he sets sail for uh, Caesarea. He goes up and he meets with the church in Jerusalem for a time. And then he goes back home to Antioch and thus ends the second missionary journey. But I want to draw your attention to what he says before he leaves Ephesus, there in verse 21. But on taking leave of them, that is, Aquila and Priscilla, he leaves in Ephesus, he says, I will return to you if God wills. And then he sets sail from Ephesus. I will return to you if God wills. Through his many journeys of taking the gospel all throughout the known Roman Empire. God has been growing Paul's faith in him to trust in his will and his plan over Paul's own. And we've seen this over and over again. The Lord intervenes to direct Paul's path. And Paul's learned that lesson. He's learned to surrender his will and his wants and his desires to the Lord's. Certainly his desire was to return to Ephesus. He wants to return to Ephesus and meet up with Aquila and Priscilla again and continue doing ministry in that great city together. But he surrenders his will to the Lord's. I will return to you if the Lord wills. And of course we know the end of the story. That is part of God's will. And so he does return there in chapter 19. But the same must be true for us, church. If we're to be faithful in our gospel witness in this time and in this place, we must learn to trust in God's providence and surrender our will and our wants and our desires and needs to his. We may not want to talk with our our neighbor about the gospel, but it's not about our will, but his will. I may not have time, I think, to engage my coworker in a gospel conversation but it's not about my will it's about God's will 
God may have begun to open a door for a gospel conversation with the barista at Starbucks, but you know what? I really prefer Dunkin' Donuts coffee. But it's not about my will. It's about God's will. I'd rather just sit here during Little League practice and catch up on social media. But it's not about my will, but God's will. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more convinced we are of this truth. That his plan, his will, is so much better than ours. God had given Paul a task. Be faithful in gospel witness in the city called Corinth. And God provided everything that Paul needed to be faithful in that task. God's called us, church, to be to, to, to a, a great task as well, to be faithful gospel witnesses for him in Decula, Buford, Flowery Branch, Hushton, Brazelton, Lawrenceville, wherever we are. And he has provided us with everything that we need to be faithful in that gospel witness. So let's thank him for that provision. And let's make use of that provision so that like Paul, we may be found faithful in the mission that he's given to us. There are only two groups of people in this room. Those to whom this mission has been given and those who are the target of this mission. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, the baton's been passed to you. Before he ascended, he said to you and I, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so here we are. Will we be his witnesses? He's provided us with everything that we'll need to be faithful in that task. Will we do it? If you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you're the target of that mission. And you need this gospel that we've been handed to bring to you a gospel that says that there is a holy and perfect creator God who created the world and everything in it, including mankind. But mankind disobeyed God and turned away from God to do his own thing away from God. And because of that, everything in life, including ourselves, are separated from God and destined to spend eternity away from him. And friend, if that describes you, that means that you have no hope of being reconciled to God through anything that you can do. You need God to come down and rescue you. And that's what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we never could and achieved the righteousness that we must have if we are to be reconciled to him. And he died on a cross making sufficient payment for the sins of all those who would trust in him one day. And he rose from the dead three days later, proving that all that was true. Friend, there's no way you could be reconciled to the God who made you for his glory through your own efforts, but only by surrendering to the work of Christ in you. Admitting that you are a sinner who needs salvation 
and, and admitting that Jesus is the Son of God. He did that for you. And that when he died and rose again, he paid the price that you deserve. Not just mankind in general, but that you deserve for your own rebellion against him. And so that is the gospel that, that, that we've been given, that we've, that we've placed our own faith in, that we've placed our own trust in. God has rescued us, and now he's handed that message to us as a baton and say, take this to a lost and dying world who has no hope apart from this baton. Friend, will you now grab it? Will you now grab that baton and trust in Christ and his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection as your only hope to be reconciled to him, to be remade as a worshiper. And then with that baton, continue the work as we are seeking to do. Let's pray. Father, what an important task. What an awe-inspiring, awesome task this is to take the gospel to our neighbor's next door and on the other side of the globe we admit that we are not equal to that task but we are so thankful to to learn from scripture that you've given us everything that we need for that there's nothing else that we need in order to accomplish that task you've given us it all and so lord would you Enable us to to make use of your provision in our life so that we would be found faithful to this mission. God, would we be faithful as a church, as as a people that would be marked by obedience to the Great Commission, that you would be pleased, that you would be honored and glorified by our efforts to be faithful in this. We can only do it in you and through you. So that's what we ask you to do, Father. And then for those in our hearing, Father, in our houses, in our workplaces, in, our, in this very room, who have not come to faith in Christ, Lord, this glorious gospel that you've given us to take to the world, Father, would you grant them faith and repentance to believe on this gospel, to hope on this gospel, and to be reconciled back to you through the hope of this gospel. May you be glorified this morning, Father as you reap spiritual fruit in the lives of the lost who come to faith and the lives of the found who seek to be faithful to this mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.